Chapter Four, Part Two of the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, by Charles Darwin. Read for LibriVox.org by Michael Armenta. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Circumstances favorable for the production of new forms through natural selection. This is an extremely intricate subject. A great amount of variability, under which term individual differences are always included, will evidently be favorable. A large number of individuals, by giving a better chance within any given period for the appearance of profitable variations, will compensate for a lesser amount of variability in each individual, and is, I believe, a highly important element of success. Though nature grants long periods of time for the work of natural selection, she does not grant an indefinite period. For as all organic beings are striving to seize on each place in the economy of nature, if any one species does not become modified and improved in a corresponding degree with its competitors, it will be exterminated, unless favorable variations be inherited by some at least of the offspring. Nothing can be effected by natural selection. The tendency to reversion may often check or prevent the work. But as this tendency has not prevented man from forming, by selection, numerous domestic races, why should it prevail against natural selection? In the case of methodical selection, a breeder selects for some definite object, and if the individuals be allowed freely to intercross, his work will completely fail. But when many men, without intending to alter the breed, have a nearly common standard of perfection, and all try to procure and breed from the best animals, improvement, surely, but slowly, follows from this unconscious process of selection, notwithstanding that there is no separation of selected individuals. Thus it will be under nature. For within a confined area, with some place in the natural polity not perfectly occupied, all the individuals, varying in the right direction, though in different degrees, will tend to be preserved. But if the area be large, its several districts will almost certainly present different conditions of life. And then, if the same species undergoes modification in different districts, the newly formed varieties will intercross on the confines of each. But we shall see in the sixth chapter that intermediate varieties, inhabiting intermediate districts, will in the long run generally be supplanted by one of the adjoining varieties. Intercrossing will chiefly affect those animals which unite for each birth, and wander much, and which do not breed at a very quick rate. Hence, with animals of this nature, for instance, birds, Varieties will generally be confined to separate countries, and this I find to be the case. With hermaphrodite organisms, which cross only occasionally, and likewise with animals which unite for each birth, but which wander little, and can increase at a rapid rate, a new and improved variety might be quickly formed on any one spot, and might there maintain itself in a body, and afterwards spread so that the individuals of the new variety would chiefly cross together. On this principle, 
nurserymen always prefer saving seed from a large body of plants, as the chance of intercrossing is thus lessened. Even with animals which unite for each birth, and which do not propagate rapidly, we must not assume that free intercrossing would always eliminate the effects of natural selection, for I can bring forward a considerable body of facts showing that within the same area two varieties of the same animal may long remain distinct from haunting different stations, from breeding at slightly different seasons, or from the individuals of each variety preferring to pair together. Intercrossing plays a very important part in nature by keeping the individuals of the same species, or of the same variety, true and uniform in character. It will obviously thus act far more efficiently with those animals which unite for each birth, but, as already stated, we have reason to believe that occasional intercrosses take place with all animals and plants. Even if these take place only at long intervals of time, the young, thus produced, will gain so much in vigor and fertility over the offspring from long-continued self-fertilization that they will have a better chance of surviving and propagating their kind. And thus, in the long run, the influence of crosses, even at rare intervals, will be great. With respect to organic beings extremely low in the scale, which do not propagate sexually, nor conjugate, and which cannot possibly intercross, uniformity of character can be retained by them under the same conditions of life, only through the principle of inheritance, and through natural selection, which will destroy any individuals departing from the proper type. If the conditions of life change, and the form undergoes modification, uniformity of character can be given to the modified offspring solely by natural selection, preserving similar favorable variations. Isolation also is an important element in the modification of species through natural selection. In a confined or isolated area, if not very large, the organic and inorganic conditions of life will generally be almost uniform, so that natural selection will tend to modify all the varying individuals of the same species in the same manner. Intercrossing with the inhabitants of the surrounding districts will also be thus prevented. Maurice Wagner has lately published an interesting essay on this subject, and has shown that the service rendered by isolation in preventing crosses between newly formed varieties is probably greater even than I supposed. But from reasons already assigned, I can no means agree with this naturalist that migration and isolation are necessary elements for the formation of new species. The importance of isolation is likewise great in preventing, after any physical change in the conditions, such as of climate, elevation of the land, etc., the immigration of better adapted organisms, and thus new places in the natural economy of the district will be left open to be filled up by the modification of the old inhabitants. Lastly, isolation will give time for a new variety to be improved at a slow rate, and this may sometimes be of much importance. If, however, an isolated area be very small, 
either from being surrounded by barriers or from having very peculiar physical conditions, the total number of the inhabitants will be small, and this will retard the production of new species through natural selection, by decreasing the chances of favorable variations arising. The mere lapse of time by itself does nothing, either for or against natural selection. I state this because it has been erroneously asserted that the element of time has been assumed by me to play an all-important part in modifying species, as if all the forms of life were necessarily undergoing change through some innate law. Lapse of time is only so far important, and its importance in this respect is great, that it gives a better chance of beneficial variations arising, and of their being selected, accumulated, and fixed. It likewise tends to increase the direct action of the physical conditions of life in relation to the constitution of each organism. If we turn to nature to test the truth of these remarks, and look at any small isolated area, such as an oceanic island, although the number of the species inhabiting it is small, as we shall see in our chapter on geographical distribution. Yet of these species, a very large proportion are endemic, that is, have been produced there and nowhere else in the world. Hence an oceanic island at first sight seems to have been highly favorable for the production of new species. But we may thus deceive ourselves, for to ascertain whether a small isolated area, or a large open area like a continent, has been most favorable for the production of new organic forms, we ought to make the comparison within equal times, and this we are incapable of doing. Although isolation is of great importance in the production of new species, on the whole I am inclined to believe that largeness of area is still more important, especially for the production of species, which shall prove capable of enduring for a long period and of spreading widely. Throughout a great and open area, not only will there be a better chance of favorable variations arising from the large number of individuals of the same species there supported, but the conditions of life are much more complex from the large number of already existing species, and if some of these many species become modified and improved, others will have to be improved in a corresponding degree or they will be exterminated. Each new form, also, as soon as it has been much improved, will be able to spread over the open and continuous area, and will thus come into competition with many other forms. Moreover, great areas, though now continuous, will often, owing to former oscillations of level, have existed in a broken condition, so that the good effects of isolation will generally to a certain extent, have concurred. Finally, I conclude that although small isolated areas have been in some respects highly favorable for the production of new species, yet that the course of modification will generally have been more rapid on large areas, and what is more important, that the new forms produced on large areas, which already have been victorious over many competitors, will be those that will spread most widely, and will give rise to the greatest number of new varieties and species. They will thus play a more important part in the changing history of the organic world. 
in accordance with this view, we can, perhaps, understand some facts which will be again alluded to in our chapter on geographical distribution. For instance, the fact of the productions of the smaller continent of Australia now yielding before those of the larger Europeo-Asiatic area. Thus also it is that continental productions have everywhere become so largely naturalized on islands. On a small island, the race for life will have been less severe, and there will have been less modification and less extermination. Hence we can understand how it is that the flora of Madeira, according to Oswald here, resembles to a certain extent the extinct tertiary flora of Europe. All fresh water basins taken together make a small area compared with that of the sea or of the land. Consequently, the competition between fresh water productions will have been less severe than elsewhere. New forms will have been more slowly produced, and old forms more slowly exterminated. And it is in freshwater basins that we find seven genera of ganoid fishes, remnants of a once preponderant order, and it is in freshwater basins that we find seven genera of ganoid fishes, remnants of a once preponderant order, and in freshwater we find some of the most anomalous forms now known in the world as the ornithorhynchus and lepidocerin, which like fossils, connect to a certain extent orders at present widely separated in the natural scale. These anomalous forms may be called living fossils. They have endured to the present day, from having inhabited a confined area, and from having been exposed to less varied, and therefore less severe, competition. To sum up, as far as the extreme intricacy of the subject permits, the circumstances favourable and unfavourable for the production of new species through natural selection. I conclude that, for terrestrial productions, a large continental area, which has undergone many oscillations of level, will have been the most favourable for the production of many new forms of life, fitted to endure for a long time and to spread widely while the area existed as a continent the inhabitants will have been numerous in individuals and kinds and will have been subjected to severe competition when converted by subsidence into large separate islands there will still have existed many individuals of the same species on each island intercrossing on the confines of the range of each new species will have been checked after physical changes of any kind immigration will have been prevented so that new places in the polity of each island will have had to be filled up by the modification of the old inhabitants and time will have been allowed for the varieties in each to become well modified and perfected when by renewed elevation, the islands were reconverted into a continental area, there will again have been very severe competition. The most favored or improved varieties will have been enabled to spread. There will have been much extinction of the less improved forms, and the relative proportional numbers of the various inhabitants of the reunited continent will again have been changed. And again, 
there will have been a fair field for natural selection to improve still further the inhabitants and thus to produce new species that natural selection generally acts with extreme slowness i fully admit it can act only when there are places in the natural polity of a district which can be better occupied by the modifications of some of its existing inhabitants the occurrence of such places will often depend on physical changes which generally take place very slowly and on the immigration of better adapted forms being prevented as some few of the old inhabitants become modified the mutual relations of others will often be disturbed and this will create new places ready to be filled up by better adapted forms but all this will take place very slowly although all the individuals of the same species differ in some slight degree from each other it would often be long before differences of the right nature in various parts of the organization might occur the result would often be greatly retarded by free intercrossing well, many will exclaim that these several causes are amply sufficient to neutralize the power of natural selection i do not believe so but i do believe that natural selection will generally act very slowly only at long intervals of time and only on a few of the inhabitants of the same region i further believe that these slow intermittent results accord well with what geology tells us of the rate and manner at which the inhabitants of the world have changed slow though the process of selection may be if feeble man can do much by artificial selection i can see no limit to the amount of change to the beauty and complexity of the co-adaptations between all organic beings one with another and with their physical conditions of life which may have been effected in the long course of time through nature's power of selection that is by the survival of the fittest extinction caused by natural selection this subject will be more fully discussed in our chapter on geology but it must here be alluded to from being intimately connected with natural selection natural selection acts solely through the preservation of variations in some way advantageous which consequently endure owing to the high geometrical rate of increase of all organic beings each area is already fully stocked with inhabitants and it follows from this that as the favorite forms increase in number so generally will the less favored decrease and become rare rarity as geology tells us is the precursor to extinction we can see that any form which is represented by few individuals will run a good chance of utter extinction during great fluctuations in the nature or the seasons or from a temporary increase in the number of its enemies but we may go further than this for as new forms are produced unless we admit that specific forms can go on indefinitely increasing in number many old forms must become extinct that the number of specific forms has not indefinitely increased geology plainly tells us and we shall presently attempt to show why it is 
that the number of species throughout the world has not become immeasurably great. We have seen that the species which are most numerous in individuals have the best chance of producing favorable variations within any given period. We have evidence of this in the facts stated in the second chapter, showing that it is the common and diffused or dominant species which offer the greatest number of recorded varieties. Hence, rare species will be less quickly modified or improved within any given period. They will consequently be beaten in the race for life by the modified and improved descendants of the commoner species. From these several considerations, I think it inevitably follows that, as new species in the course of time are formed through natural selection, others will become rarer and rarer and, finally, extinct. The forms which stand in closest competition with those undergoing modification and improvement will naturally suffer most, and we have seen in the chapter on the struggle for existence that it is the most closely allied forms, varieties of the same species, and species of the same genus or related genera, which, from having nearly the same structure, constitution, and habits, generally come into the severest competition with each other. Consequently, each new variety, or species, during the progress of its formation, will generally press hardest on its nearest kindred, and tend to exterminate them. We see the same process of extermination among our domesticated productions, through the selection of improved forms by man. Many curious instances could be given showing how quickly new breeds of cattle, sheep, and other animals, and varieties of flowers, take the place of older and inferior kinds. In Yorkshire it is historically known that the ancient black cattle were displaced by the longhorns, and that these, quote, were swept away by the short horns, I quote the words of an agricultural writer, quote, as if by some murderous pestilence, end quote. Divergence of Character The principle which I have designated by this term is of high importance and explains, as I believe, several important facts. In the first place, varieties, even strongly marked ones, though having somewhat of the character of species, as is shown by the hopeless doubts in many cases how to rank them, yet certainly differ far less from each other than do good and distinct species. Nevertheless, according to my view, varieties are species in the process of formation, or are, as I have called them, incipient species. How, then, does the lesser difference between varieties become augmented into the greater difference between species? That this does habitually happen, we must infer from most of the innumerable species throughout nature, presenting well-marked differences, whereas varieties, the supposed prototypes and parents of future well-marked species, present slight and ill-defined differences. Mere chance, as we may call it, might cause one variety to differ in some character from its parents, and the offspring of this variety again to differ from its parent in the very same character, and in a greater degree. 
but this alone would never account for so habitual and large a degree of difference as that between the species of the same genus as has always been my practice i have sought light on this head from our domestic productions we shall here find something analogous it will be admitted that the production of races so different as shorthorn and hereford cattle race and cart horses the several breeds of pigeons etc could never have been effected by the mere chance accumulation of similar variations during many successive generations in practice a fancier is for instance struck by a pigeon having a slightly shorter beak another fancier is struck by a pigeon having a rather longer beak and on the acknowledged principle that quote, fanciers do not and will not admire a medium standard but like extremes end quote. they both go on as has actually occurred with the sub-breeds of the tumbler pigeon choosing and breeding from birds with longer and longer beaks or with shorter and shorter beaks again we may suppose that at an early period of history the men of one nation or district required swifter horses while those of another required stronger and bulkier horses the earlier differences would be very slight but in the course of time from the continued selection of swifter horses in the one case and of stronger ones in the other the differences would become greater and would be noted as forming two sub-breeds ultimately after the lapse of centuries these sub-breeds would become converted into two well-established and distinct breeds as the differences become greater the inferior animals with intermediate characters being neither very swift nor very strong would not have been used for breeding and will thus have tended to disappear here then we see in man's productions the action of what may be called the principle of divergence causing differences at first barely appreciable steadily to increase and the breeds to diverge in character both from each other and from their common parent but how it may be asked can any analogous principle apply in nature i believe it can and does apply most efficiently though it was a long time before i saw how from the simple circumstance that the more diversified the descendants from any one species become in structure constitution and habits by so much will they be better enabled to seize on many and widely diversified places in the polity of nature and so be enabled to increase in number we can clearly discern this in the case of animals with simple habits take the case of a carnivorous quadruped of which the number that can be supported in any country has long ago arrived at its full average if its natural power of increase be allowed to act it can succeed in increasing the country not undergoing any change in conditions only by its varying descendants seizing on places at present occupied by other animals some of them for instance being enabled to feed on new kinds of prey either dead or alive some inhabiting new stations 
climbing trees, frequenting water, and some perhaps becoming less carnivorous. The more diversified in habits and structure the descendants of our carnivorous animals become, the more places they will be enabled to occupy. What applies to one animal will apply throughout all time to all animals, that is, if they vary, for otherwise natural selection can affect nothing. So it will be with plants. It has been experimentally proved that if a plot of ground be sown with one species of grass, and a similar plot be sown with several distinct genera of grasses, a greater number of plants and a greater weight of dry herbage can be raised in the latter than in the former case. The same has been found to hold good when one variety and several mixed varieties of wheat have been sown on equal spaces of ground. Hence, if any one species of grass were to go on varying, and the varieties were continually selected, which differed from each other in the same manner, though in a very slight degree, as do the distinct species and genera of grasses, a greater number of individual plants of this species, including its modified descendants, would succeed in living on the same piece of ground. And we know that each species and each variety of grass is annually sowing almost countless seeds, and is thus striving, as it may be said, to the utmost to increase in number. Consequently, in the course of many thousand generations, the more distinct varieties of any one species of grass would have the best chance of succeeding, and of increasing in numbers, and thus of supplanting the less distinct varieties. And varieties, when rendered very distinct from each other, take the rank of species. The truth of the principle that the greatest amount of life can be supported by great diversification of structure is seen under many natural circumstances. In an extremely small area, especially if freely open to immigration, and where the contest between individual and individual must be very severe, we always find great diversity in its inhabitants. For instance, I found that a piece of turf three feet by four in size, which had been exposed for many years to exactly the same conditions, supported twenty different species of plants, and these belonged to eighteen genera, and to eight orders, which shows how much these plants differed from each other. So it is with the plants and insects on small and uniform islets, also in ponds of fresh water, Farmers find that they can raise more food by a rotation of plants belonging to the most different orders. Nature follows what may be called a simultaneous rotation. Most of the animals and plants which live close round any small piece of ground could live on it, supposing its nature not to be in any way peculiar, and may be said to be striving to the utmost to live there but it is seen that where they come into the closest competition, the advantages of diversification of structure, with the accompanying differences of habit and constitution, determine that the inhabitants, which thus jostle each other most closely, shall, as a general rule, belong to what we call different genera and orders. The same principle is seen in the naturalization of plants through man's agency in foreign lands. 
it might have been expected that the plants which would succeed in becoming naturalized in any land would generally have been closely allied to the indigenes for these are commonly looked at as specially created and adapted for their own country it might also perhaps have been expected that naturalized plants would have belonged to a few groups more especially adapted to certain stations in their new homes but the case is very different and adolphe de candole as well remarked in his great and admirable work that floras gain by naturalization proportionally with the number of the native genera and species far more in new genera than in new species to give a single instance in the last edition of dr asa gray's manual of the flora of the northern united states two hundred and sixty naturalized plants are enumerated and these belong to one hundred and sixty two genera we thus see that these naturalized plants are of a highly diversified nature they differ moreover to a large extent from the indigenes for out of the one hundred and sixty two naturalized genera no less than one hundred genera are not there indigenous and thus a large proportional addition is made to the genera now living in the united states by considering the nature of the plants or animals which have in any country struggled successfully with the indigenes and have there become naturalized we may gain some crude idea in what manner some of the natives would have had to be modified in order to gain an advantage over their compatriots and we may at least infer that diversification of structure amounting to new generic differences would be profitable to them the advantage of diversification of structure in the inhabitants of the same region is in fact the same as that of the physiological division of labor in the organs of the same individual body a subject so well elucidated by milne edwards no physiologist doubts that a stomach by being adapted to digest vegetable matter alone or flesh alone draws most nutriment from these substances so in the general economy of any land the more widely and perfectly the animals and plants are diversified for different habits of life so will a greater number of individuals be capable of their supporting themselves a set of animals with their organization but little diversified could hardly compete with a set more perfectly diversified in structure it may be doubted for instance whether the australian marsupials which are divided into groups differing but little from each other and feebly representing as mr waterhouse and others have remarked our carnivorous ruminant and rodent mammals could successfully compete with these well-developed orders in the australian mammals we see the process of diversification in an early and incomplete stage of development the probable effects of the action of natural selection through divergence of character and extinction on the descendants of a common ancestor after the foregoing discussion which has been much compressed we may assume that the modified descendants of any one species will succeed 
so much the better as they become more diversified in structure, and are thus enabled to encroach on places occupied by other beings. Now let us see how this principle of benefit, being derived from divergence of character, combined with the principles of natural selection and of extinction, tends to act. The accompanying diagram will aid us in understanding this rather perplexing subject. Let A to L represent the species of a genus large in its own country. These species are supposed to resemble each other in unequal degrees, as is so generally the case in nature, and as is represented in the diagram by the letters standing at unequal distances. I have said a large genus, because, as we saw in the second chapter, on an average more species vary in large genera than in small genera, and the varying species of a large genera present a greater number of varieties. We have, also, seen that the species, which are the commonest and most widely diffused, vary more than do the rare and restricted species. Let A be a common, widely diffused and varying species belonging to a genus large in its own country. The branching and diverging dotted lines of unequal lengths proceeding from A may represent its varying offspring. The variations are supposed to be extremely slight, but of the most diversified nature. They are not supposed all to appear simultaneously, but often after long intervals of time, nor are they all supposed to endure for equal periods. Only those variations which are in some way profitable will be preserved, or naturally selected. And here the importance of the principle of benefit derived from divergence of character comes in, for this will generally lead to the most different or divergent variations, represented by the outer dotted lines, being preserved and accumulated by natural selection. When a dotted line reaches one of the horizontal lines and is there marked by a small numbered letter, a sufficient amount of variation is supposed to have been accumulated to form it into a fairly well-marked variety, such as would be thought worthy of record in a systematic work. The intervals between the horizontal lines in the diagram may represent each a thousand or more generations. After a thousand generations, Species A is supposed to have produced two fairly well-marked varieties, namely A1 and M1. These two varieties will generally still be exposed to the same conditions which made their parents variable, and the tendency to variability is in itself hereditary. Consequently, they will likewise tend to vary, and commonly in nearly the same manner as did their parents. Moreover, these two varieties, being only slightly modified forms, will tend to inherit those advantages which made their parent, A, more numerous than most of the other inhabitants of the same country. They will also partake of those more general advantages which made the genus to which the parent species belonged a large genus in its own country, and all these circumstances are favourable to the production of new varieties. If, then, 
these two varieties be variable the most divergent of their variations will generally be preserved during the next thousand generations and after this interval variety a one is supposed in the diagram to have produced variety a two which will owing to the principle of divergence differ more from a than did variety a one variety m one is supposed to have produced two varieties namely m two and s two differing from each other and more considerably from their common parent a we may continue the process by similar steps for any length of time some of the varieties after each thousand generations producing only a single variety but in a more and more modified condition some producing two or three varieties and some failing to produce any thus the varieties or modified descendants of the common parent a will generally go on increasing in number and diverging in character in the diagram the process is represented up to the ten thousandth generation and under a condensed and simplified form up to the fourteen thousandth generation but i must here remark that i do not suppose that the process ever goes on so regularly as is represented in the diagram though in itself made somewhat irregular nor that it goes on continuously it is far more probable that each form remains for long periods unaltered and then again undergoes modification nor do i suppose that the most divergent varieties are invariably preserved a medium form may often long endure and may or may not produce more than one modified descendant for natural selection will always act according to the nature of the places which are either unoccupied or not perfectly occupied by other beings and this will depend on infinitely complex relations but as a general rule the more diversified in structure the descendants from any one species can be rendered the more places they will be enabled to seize on and the more their modified progeny will increase in our diagram the line of succession is broken at regular intervals by small numbered letters marking the successive forms which have become sufficiently distinct to be recorded as varieties but these breaks are imaginary and might have been inserted anywhere after intervals long enough to allow the accumulation of a considerable amount of divergent variation as all the modified descendants from a common and widely diffused species belonging to a large genus will tend to partake of the same advantages which made their parent successful in life they will generally go on multiplying in number as well as diverging in character this is represented in the diagram by the several divergent branches proceeding from a the modified offspring from the later and more highly improved branches in the line of descent will it is probable often take the place of and so destroy the earlier and less improved branches this is represented in the diagram by some of the lower branches not reaching to the upper horizontal lines in some cases 
no doubt the process of modification will be confined to a single line of descent and the number of modified descendants will not be increased although the amount of divergent modification may have been augmented this case would be represented in the diagram if all the lines proceeding from a were removed excepting that from a one to a ten in the same way the english racehorse and english pointer have apparently both gone on slowly diverging in character from their original stocks without either having given off any fresh branches or races after ten thousand generations species a is supposed to have produced three forms a ten f ten and m ten which from having diverged in character during the successive generations will have come to differ largely but perhaps unequally from each other and from their common parent if we suppose the amount of change between each horizontal line in our diagram to be excessively small these three forms may still be only well-marked varieties but we have only to suppose the steps in the process of modification to be more numerous or greater in amount to convert these three forms into doubtful or at least into well-defined species thus the diagram illustrates the steps by which the small differences distinguishing varieties are increased into the larger differences distinguishing species by continuing the same process for a greater number of generations as shown in the diagram in a condensed and simplified manner we get eight species marked by the letters between a fourteen and m fourteen all descended from a thus as i believe species are multiplied and genera are formed in a large genus it is probable that more than one species would vary in the diagram i have assumed that a second species i has produced by analogous steps after ten thousand generations either two well-marked varieties w ten and z ten or two species according to the amount of change supposed to be represented between the horizontal lines after fourteen thousand generations six new species marked by the letters n fourteen to z fourteen are supposed to have been produced in any genus the species which are already very different in character from each other will generally tend to produce the greatest number of modified descendants for these will have the best chance of seizing on new and widely different places in the polity of nature hence in the diagram i have chosen the extreme species a and the nearly extreme species i as those which have largely varied and have given rise to new varieties and species the other nine species marked by capital letters of our original genus may for long but unequal periods continue to transmit unaltered descendants and this is shown in the diagram by the dotted lines unequally prolonged upwards but during the process of modification represented in the diagram another of our principles namely that of extinction will have played an important part 
as in each fully stocked country natural selection necessarily acts by the selected form having some advantage in the struggle for life over other forms there will be a constant tendency in the improved descendants of any one species to supplant and exterminate in each stage of descent their predecessors and their original progenitor for it should be remembered that the competition will generally be most severe between those forms which are most nearly related to each other in habits constitution and structure hence all the intermediate forms between the earlier and later states that is between the less and more improved states of the same species as well as the original parent species itself will generally tend to become extinct so it probably will be with many whole collateral lines of descent which will be conquered by later and improved lines if however the modified offspring of a species get into some distinct country or become quickly adapted to some quite new station in which offspring and progenitor do not come into competition both may continue to exist if then our diagram be assumed to represent a considerable amount of modification species a and all the earlier varieties will have become extinct being replaced by eight new species a fourteen to m fourteen and species i will be replaced by six and fourteen to z fourteen new species but we may go further than this the original species of our genus were supposed to resemble each other in unequal degrees as is so generally the case in nature species a being more nearly related to b c and d than to the other species and species i more to g h k l than to the others these two species a and i were also supposed to be very common and widely diffused species so that they must originally have had some advantage over most of the other species of the genus their modified descendants fourteen in number at the fourteen thousandth generation will probably have inherited some of the same advantages they have also been modified and improved in a diversified manner at each stage of descent so as to have become adapted to many related places in the natural economy of their country it seems therefore extremely probable that they will have taken the places of and thus exterminated not only their parents a and i but likewise some of the original species which were most nearly related to their parents hence very few of the original species will have transmitted offspring to the fourteen thousandth generation we may suppose that only one f of the two species e and f which were least closely related to the other nine original species has transmitted descendants to this late stage of descent the new species in our diagram descended from the original eleven species will now be fifteen in number owing to the divergent tendency of natural selection 
the extreme amount of difference in character between species A14 and Z14 will be much greater than that between the most distinct of the original eleven species. The new species, moreover, will be allied to each other in a widely different manner. Of the eight descendants from A, the three marked A14, Q14, P14, will be nearly related from having recently branched off from A10, B14 and F14, from having diverged at an earlier period from A5, will be, in some degree, distinct from the three first-named species. And, lastly, O14, E14, and M14 will be nearly related one to the other, but from having diverged at the first commencement of the process of modification, will be widely different from the other five species, and may constitute a subgenus or a distinct genus. The six descendants from I will form two subgenera or genera, but as the original species, I, differed largely from A, standing nearly at the extreme end of the original genus, the six descendants from I will, owing to inheritance alone, differ considerably from the eight descendants from A. The two groups, moreover, are supposed to have gone on diverging in different directions. The intermediate species also, and this is a very important consideration, which connected the original species A and I, have all become, except F, extinct, and have left no descendants. Hence the six new species descended from I, and the eight descendants from A will have to be ranked as very distinct genera, or even as distinct subfamilies. Thus it is, as I believe, that two or more genera are produced by descent with modification from two or more species of the same genus, and the two or more parent species are supposed to be descended from one species of an earlier genus. In our diagram this is indicated by the broken lines beneath the capital letters converging in sub-branches downwards towards a single point. This point represents a species, the supposed progenitor of our several new subgenera and genera. It is worth while to reflect for a moment on the character of the new species F14, which is supposed not to have diverged much in character, but to have retained the form of F, either unaltered or altered only in a slight degree. In this case, its affinities to the other fourteen new species will be of a curious and circuitous nature, being descended from a form that stood between the parent species A and I, now supposed to be extinct and unknown, it will be, in some degree, intermediate in character between the two groups descended from these two species. But, as these two groups have gone on diverging in character from the type of their parents, the new species, F14, will not be directly intermediate between them, but rather between types of the two groups, and every naturalist will be able to call such cases before his mind, 
in the diagram, each horizontal line has hitherto been supposed to represent a thousand generations, but each may represent a million or more generations. It may also represent a section of the successive strata of the Earth's crust, including extinct remains. We shall, when we come to our chapter on geology, have to refer again to this subject, and I think we shall then see that the diagram throws light on the affinities of extinct beings, which, though generally belonging to the same orders, families, or genera, with those now living, yet are often, in some degree, intermediate in character between existing groups, and we can understand this fact, for the extinct species lived at various remote epochs when the branching lines of descent had diverged less. I see no reason to limit the process of modification, as now explained, to the formation of genera alone. If, in the diagram, we supposed the amount of change represented by each successive group of diverging dotted lines to be great, the forms marked A14 to P14, those marked B14 and F14, and those marked O14 to M14, will form three very distinct genera. We shall also have two very distinct genera descended from I, differing widely from the descendants of A. These two groups of genera will thus form two distinct families, or orders, according to the amount of divergent modification supposed to be represented in the diagram, and the two new families, or orders, are descended from two species of the original genus, and these are supposed to be descended from some still more ancient and unknown form. We have seen that in each country it is the species belonging to the larger genera which oftenest present varieties or incipient species. This, indeed, might have been expected, for as natural selection acts through one form having some advantage over other forms in the struggle for existence, it will chiefly act on those which already have some advantage, and the largeness of any group shows that its species have inherited from a common ancestor some advantage in common. Hence, the struggle for the production of new and modified descendants will mainly lie between the larger groups, which are all trying to increase in number. Hence, the struggle for the production of new and modified descendants will mainly lie between the larger groups, which are all trying to increase in number. One large group will slowly conquer another large group, reduce its number, and thus lessen its chance of further variation and improvement. Within the same large group, the later and more highly perfected subgroups, from branching out and seizing on many new places in the polity of nature, will constantly tend to supplant and destroy the earlier and less improved subgroups. Small and broken groups and subgroups will finally disappear. Looking to the future, we can predict that the groups of organic beings, which are now large and triumphant, and which are least broken up, that is, which have as yet suffered least extinction, will, for a long period, continue to increase. But which groups will ultimately prevail, no man can predict, 
for we know that many groups, formerly most extensively developed, have now become extinct. Looking still more remotely to the future, we may predict that owing to the continued and steady increase of the larger groups, a multitude of smaller groups will become utterly extinct and leave no modified descendants, and, consequently, that, of the species living at any one period, extremely few will transmit descendants to a remote futurity. I shall have to return to this subject in the chapter on classification, but I may add that as, according to this view, extremely few of the more ancient species have transmitted descendants to the present day, and, as all the descendants of the same species form a class, we can understand how it is that there exist so few classes in each main division of the animal and vegetable kingdoms. Although few of the most ancient species have left modified descendants, yet at remote geological periods the earth may have been almost as well peopled with species of many genera, families, orders, and classes, as at the present day. End of chapter 4, part 2 this LibriVox recording is in the public domain.